This is A Word, a podcast from Sleep. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The death of Martin Luther King Jr. was captured in an iconic photograph taken moments after he was shot. The picture captures the slain civil rights leader bleeding out on a balcony, surrounded by trusted advisors, and a man who we now know was a spy. I just thought, how could a black man infiltrate a group that's fighting for black liberation and report back to the Memphis Police Department. The Kneeling Man, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The flattening of black history into a simple story of good guys and bad guys started long before the debates over critical race theory. In the current era, Martin Luther King Jr. is almost universally hailed as a hero, but up until the time of his death, he was treated as a dangerous man and a threat to the nation who needed to be watched. Part of that story is told in the new book, The Kneeling Man, My Father's Life as a Black Spy Who Witnessed the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., The title of the book refers to Merle McCullough, who is in the famous photograph of Martin Luther King Jr. after he was shot at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. In the iconic picture, as civil rights leaders Andrew Young, Ralph Abernathy, and Jesse Jackson point in the direction of the assassin, McCullough is kneeling beside King, holding a towel to his wound. What wasn't known at the time was that, although he was posing as an activist, McCullough was actually a spy who was reporting on King and his colleagues to white authorities in Memphis. The Kneeling Man explores McCullough's path to that moment and after it. His daughter, journalist and attorney, Lita McCullough-Seletsky, wrote the book and joins us now to talk about it. Lita McCullough-Seletsky, welcome to A Word. Thank you so much for having me. This is a really fascinating book, and there's so many people who find out mysterious things about their families and their history. What did your dad say to you growing up about being at the scene of King's death. He said not one word about it, Jason. He never mentioned the assassination until I brought it up in my 30s. Wow. (laughs) Okay. This is part of what makes this story so fascinating. What made you bring it up? If your father never told you, how did you find out that he literally is the kneeling man in the photo trying to staunch King's wound after he was assassinated. I knew from an early age that he was in the photograph. My parents divorced when I was three years old. And um, at the time, we were living in Northern Virginia. My mom took uh, my little brother and me to her hometown of Memphis, Tennessee, which is where I grew up. She raised me along with her family. And so she showed me and my little brother that photograph And looking back, I can see now that she was preparing us for this knowledge. But she simply said that this is your father. He was a Memphis police officer. And we were made to understand that this was a famous photograph. And that's more or less all that was ever said about it. So at the time, your dad was pretending to be someone so that he could get that close to King. Who was he pretending to be, and how the heck did he get that close to one of the most endangered men on the planet at the time? You know, who was your father pretending to be to get that close? Well, 
In fact, he was pretending to be someone else, but the purpose was not to get close to King, but to infiltrate a black militant group called the Invaders, which were kind of like Memphis's version of the Black Panthers a little bit. And so it just happened that in that role of the uh, invader that he was, which, by the way, soon after joining, named their Minister of Transportation because he was one of the few uh, members who had a car. It just so happened that he was in this role as the invaders Minister of Transportation, driving people around. Dr. King and his organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, were in Memphis helping support the sanitation strikers. There was a big sanitation strike going on in Memphis, and Dr. King got involved, which was really valuable and important to this labor movement. And so um, Dr. King and his cohorts were in town, and my dad was driving around one of these cohorts, and it was just moments after they arrived that uh, a thunderous boom rang out that my dad immediately recognized was a gunshot. I mean, he was a, a actually commissioned police officer, so he knew very well that Dr. King had been shot. Dr. King fell um, to the floor of the balcony. And unlike most people whose instinct is not going to be to run into an active shooter situation, my dad is one of these people who is not thinking first about his own personal safety, but he's thinking, you know, Dr. King has been shot and somebody's got to do something to try to help. And my dad has the training to at least attempt first aid. And so that is what he rushed up to that balcony to do. He ran up an external staircase, dropped down to the floor, recognizing that there's a shooter out there who may not be finished, crawled over to Dr. King, grabbing a towel off a cleaning cart that uh, he had to pass by, and used this towel to apply pressure to Dr. King's wound. We're going to take a short break and we come back more on a new perspective on the King assassination with author Lita McCullough-Seleski. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the new book, The Kneeling Man. My father's life as a black spy who witnessed the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Our guest is author Lita McCullough-Seleski. So there weren't a lot of black cops anywhere in the country at the time. How the heck did your dad get that job? This was something that he certainly did not foresee happening. He didn't even finish high school, but essentially he was hornswoggled into dropping out of high school to enlist in the army. And when he got into the army, he took some tests that uh, ended up seeing him placed uh, into military police school. So he was a military policeman for three years and was discharged. And instead of going back to his home, town in the Mississippi Delta, he decided to go to Memphis, which he thought would afford him a chance at the kind of life he wanted to lead and would bring him uh, certainly more choices than he would have had in, uh, in Mississippi. And so he arrives in Memphis where he has some relatives and immediately starts looking for a job. What he finds, though, is that he can't get a job. He had a GED, which he was able to earn while serving in the military, but he's walking the pavement day after day. No one will hire him. 
And so it was just through the good graces of his cousin, Eugene, that he winds up getting a couple of um, manual labor jobs. Uh, he and his cousin, Eugene, ride to work every day. One morning in the summer of 1967, they are riding to work. And an ad comes on the radio, and it's a police department recruiting ad. And so Eugene turns to Mac, my dad, and says, hey, Mac, you know, uh, weren't you a military police officer? And my dad says, yeah. And he said, well, you ought to apply for this. And my dad says, they're not going to hire any Negro police officer. And Eugene said, you don't know that. You ought to at least try. And so not wanting to disappoint Eugene, who has done so much for him and believes in him, clearly, he says, okay, well, I guess I'll just go down there and pick up the application and put it in if it'll make Eugene happy. And then he does this. And, you know, the recruiting officer informs him at the end of the day, well, you, you know, you can't just walk out of here with the application because you've got to take the civil service exam, which is starting across the street right now. <laughs> so he has to go over, sit for this exam, appear before a panel of officers, top brass. And it's only, you know, around midnight that he finds out that he has made the cut. And that is how Mac McCullough becomes a black Memphis police officer in 1967. Hard enough as it is to become a police officer in America as a black person. Then in the 1960s, how did your father end up going undercover in this organization called the Invaders? So my father graduated from the academy in 1967. He's now a commissioned police officer. And he starts out like any rookie um, doing foot patrol. He does that for a little while, moves up to car patrols. And again, these are black neighborhoods in Memphis. He's seen in uniform by many people. Then we move into February. This historic sanitation strike happens. The city doesn't know what to do. Law enforcement doesn't know what to do. As the city hires scab workers to collect the garbage, reports start coming in of interference with the collection of garbage by these scabs, even reports of gunshots being fired and things like that. And so one day he gets a call and the assistant chief wants to see my dad in his office. And so what the assistant chief wants is for my dad and another black officer to go down and just listen in on um, one of these mass meetings that the strike supporters are having to see if they have any plans in place to cause any kind of unrest, you know, change their plain clothes and just go and then listen and report back. And so this becomes a continuing assignment just to listen in and keep tabs. The other black officer ends up getting outed in one of these meetings where somebody, you know, stands up and points out this other officer like, hey, we got a cop in here. This guy gets run out. But my dad is never spotted and is able to successfully keep doing this. Of course, the higher ups at the police department are very pleased by this. They decide that he's done such a good job, you know, he ought to see, see if he can encounter some of these invaders guys who have been known to show up at these meetings. Law enforcement is concerned that they might be trying to radicalize the strike supporters in some way. And so my dad says, okay. <laughs> and he goes and is able to befriend some of these invaders 
He ends up getting invited back to their headquarters, hangs out with them, reports back the whole time. They are not a threat and they're not doing anything (laughs) that's going to cause civil unrest. And so that is how he got into this role of a mole in The Invaders. You interviewed a member of the Invaders, you know, the group that your father spied on, the group that's the reason that he ended up being the Kneeling Man. You interviewed one of the leaders of the Invaders back in 2016. Did he know that your father was ratting them out? Like, what was the reaction when you talked to this guy who, you know, ran this organization your father was spying on? This was another big surprise for me. Kobe Smith, one of the co-founders of the Invaders, I thought he would be perfectly uh, reasonable and well within his rights to be very upset that uh, this man, my father, who had pretended to be his friend, who had spent so much time with him, had actually turned out to be an undercover police officer reporting back on his movements and everything he was doing. This was one of the first questions I asked him. And he said, the fact that the Memphis Police Department assigned a black officer to us, I thought that was fantastic. In fact, he went on to say that he was not even opposed to the idea of people talking to law enforcement, talking to police. He said he was opposed to people who did harm and he didn't really define or, or you know, state who he thought it was who did harm, although I think he dropped certain hints. But it seems pretty clear from our conversation, my father was not among those that he thought did harm. Not everybody obviously looks at your father that way. You've got crazy conspiracy theories, and we've heard them all. There's conspiracy theories about Jesse. There's conspiracy theories about Andrew. There's conspiracy theories that, ah, if you look at this particular angle in this picture, the way they're looking, they knew the shot was coming, blah, blah, blah. How have you responded to to those conspiracy theories in regards to like your own father? You know, was it, was it offensive when you started finding those things out? How did you respond to those? I was ready and bracing for any range of responses once the story started coming out. And by the way, I mean, this was part of the reason why I was so afraid of this story and really ran from it my whole life until I decided after I had kids that I owed it to them to find out who Granddaddy Mac is, you know, who is their grandfather and what is our legacy. But My response to the conspiracy theorists, I mean, for a long time, I wouldn't engage with it at all. From time to time, I would Google my dad's name. You know, I'd see terrible things, things accusing my dad of the worst kinds of actions. And it it was very painful and um, definitely was why I began to maintain this silence that had existed in my family. But once I decided and, and, you know, got my dad on board with unpacking this story and delving into it, I kind of set my intention on having this book be the response. Your dad was disgusted with what he saw as the federal response to the uprisings uh, after King's murder. But he continued in law enforcement and then he joined the CIA. If he saw the racism and some of the institutional problems in local Memphis police, if he saw the national response to the assassination of King as being problematic, how the heck did he reconcile that with joining the CIA? That's a great question. And I mean, my dad had seen um, some things happening on a federal level that he absolutely disagreed with. At the same time, the FBI was a federal institution that a lot of black folks, especially across the South, depended on to act as a foil to some of these racist local police departments and sheriff's offices. 
And so the FBI was kind of considered, you know, in some sense, potentially the good guys. Desegregation began with the federal government and the Department of Defense. So the federal government was seen as um, part of the antidote, in a sense, to um, some of the things that were happening in the South. I should say also that my dad never aspired to become a CIA officer. And in fact, when it was suggested to him, he thought it was outrageous. <laughs> he wanted to become an FBI agent, which to our ears also sounds outrageous, but not at the time for the reasons I mentioned. But, you know, in, in the course of working with the Memphis Police Department, he ended up working with a couple of special agents for the FBI working out of the Memphis field office. And they had a very cordial, collegial relationship. There were so many contacts between Memphis government and Memphis police and the FBI, especially that field office, that it was just seen as like a natural next step, like you're graduating. And so he was shocked when he put in his application to become an FBI agent and they basically ghosted him and gave him some BS reasons why they weren't taking his application seriously. And it just so happened that there was a um, doctor who was riding along with my dad and his partner. He asks my dad, you know, so how's your application going with the FBI? And my dad tells him it's not going. Dr. Oswald, by the way, is his name. Dr. Oswald says, um, well, you ought to just forget about the FBI and apply for the CIA. And so he doesn't act on this advice right away, but it's still, you know, it's kind of in the back of his mind one day and he decides to take this advice. And that is how he became a CIA officer who went on to a very long career there. We're going to take a short break. When we come back more about the new book, The Kneeling Man, My Father's Life as a Black Spy Who Witnessed the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with Lita McCullough-Seleski about her new book, The Kneeling Man, My Father's Life as a Black Spy Who Witnessed the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. I have to ask this, not as an author, not as a lawyer, but just as a black woman with the sort of political beliefs that you seem to have when you were younger, did you ever think your dad was a sellout? I had that moment when I found out that he had infiltrated this group, the invaders, which, by the way, I found out from the newspaper. Nobody in my family told me this. I mean, I wonder, too, how much they even knew about this. But I was reading the newspaper as a high schooler, and I, I saw an article that was describing my father's role as a mole. And I was very upset about it. I just thought, how could a Black man infiltrate a group that's fighting for Black liberation and report back to the Memphis Police Department. I, I just, I cannot get my head around that. When you were working on this book, and, and I'm sure it couldn't have been easy. I mean, you were bringing up things that your family clearly didn't want to talk about, that your father really hadn't shared with you. How, how did it change your relationship with your father and other members of your family? It actually has brought everyone closer together. And the reason for that is because that big, giant silence that existed about all of this is gone now. And, you know, you really can't get to know somebody on a deep level if you're dancing around something of this magnitude. And so I think it's allowed all of us to deepen our 
relationships in ways that just wouldn't have been possible without getting the story told. And so my dad and I are very close in a way that this was the only way that it would have been possible. Now I look back and I just think it's it's a terrifying thought that I might not have done this. So you're you're fortunate to still have your father with you. Is he proud of what he did? Does he look back on that today? And, and does he say, hey, I think what I did was good? Or, or is it more a personal thing of like, hey, I was trying to take care of you and your brother? He is proud and I'm proud, you know, of how he operated within the strictures in which he had to operate. I mean, his path was very much circumscribed by segregation by this pipeline from high school to military, you know, to manual labor. And then, you know, it just so happened he was able to join the police department. That was his one shot to not be making a dollar an hour working at Memphis Sash and Door and and the motorboat company. I mean, not that there's nothing wrong with those jobs, but I'm talking about freedom, self-determination, the ability to live out the abilities that you have and the gifts, your gifts and talents, and hopefully to lift as you climb and pay that forward. And so, yeah, he's proud of how he conducted himself within these systems. What would you tell him or her who's like, I have this amazing story of this thing that my family did. What advice would you give that person who's sitting on that story on how to begin the journey that you have now completed with this great book, Kneeling Man? I would say run, don't walk, record the histories of the people who remain with us on this plane. Please get those voices recorded immediately because tomorrow is promised to no one. As we know, we're losing a generation of civil rights memories. We're losing people. And so it's so essential that if you have the ability to record our elders, just go ahead and just start taping these recordings. It doesn't have to start off, you know, in this momentous way. Just, you know, uh, start off with a tell me a childhood story and just let it be a conversation. But get those stories down. Also, if it pertains to the government, um, go ahead and get your Freedom of Information Act request going because those take a long time. So just get it submitted right away. Lita McCullough-Seletsky is the author of The Kneeling Man, My Father's Life as a Black Spy Who Witnessed the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Thank you so much for joining us today on A Word. This has been a fantastic conversation, Lita. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that's A Word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word. Word.